This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York, and we begin with the latest on the crisis in Ukraine. This hour in Mariupol, and what appears to be an extraordinary turn of events at a theatre used as a bomb shelter and targeted by a Russian airstrike. We've been told that survivors walked away from that building in what would be an incredible escape. We're trying to ascertain how many. Over a thousand women and children were down there, according to Ukrainian officials, and it was bombed despite the word children being spelled out in Russian outside on both sides of the building, as you can see there circled. The Ukrainian defense minister said whoever chose that target was a monster. President Zelensky was asked if there were any red lines left for Russia to cross. I don't understand the meaning of red lines. What else should we wait for? For letting Russians kill 200, 300 or 400 uh, children? Just hours before the end of the curfew in Kyiv, this apartment building was hit by a Russian airstrike. Firefighters there now searching the upper floors. This is just one of several blocks struck over the last 24 hours. Now, while the Russian attacks from the air, British intelligence suggests the ground offensive is not going well and has largely stalled. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are striking back. In this video for Mariupol, it shows an attack on a Russian tank. You can see rockets strike the tank, which loses its tracks, and the Russian troops try to abandon it. Ukraine says it's also carried out an airstrike on the Kherson airport, now used by the Russian military. You can see destroyed military vehicles in this video too. And satellite images show damaged Russian helicopters. Meanwhile in Washington, President Biden, for the first time calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Returning to the Mariupol theatre bombing, without doubt one of the most sickening attacks on civilians since the invasion began, as Nick Payton Walsh reports. The flicker of flame here, where Russia's barbarism peaked, and an airstrike hit a bomb shelter hiding hundreds beneath a theatre, said local officials. The damage so complete, the entrance was reduced to rubble. This satellite image from two days earlier, showing the building standing, with children written large outside. In case you're still thinking, nobody knew who was here. Videos had been circulating for days of the hell inside. How over a week of siege and shelling had forced those still living into a space so tight and dark it must have felt like a tomb. Here, he says, is where we give out food to children, women and elderly first. This is the converted cloakroom of the theatre. If this looks like how you imagined the end of the world, for these children, packed in, that may have been the case when the bomb struck. Russia claimed Ukrainian radicals caused the blast. In this room, 15 people, the narrator says. Little comfort any parent can give, bar the lie, this would be over soon. And below this store, there are yet more, an entire city forced underground, little aid allowed in and few allowed out. People hear us, here are children, he says, 
His appeal is for food, help. Perhaps unaware, it may have led Russian bombs straight to them. The swimming pool was also hit, a place where this narrator says a pregnant woman was trapped under the rubble and where only expectant mothers and those with under threes hid. The Kremlin wants to break or flatten this port, but its defenders still exact a cost, still keep them out. This drone video shows the moment Ukrainian fighters hit a Russian tank. The shots come again and again, removing one of the tank's tracks. The crew are later seen hit as they try to flee. No room for mercy in a city that has little space left for life itself. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Odessa, Ukraine. And international security editor Nick Payton Walsh joins us now. Nick, good to have you with us. I want to get back to that theatre in Mariupol. And I was just mentioning before your wrap up there that they, we were starting to get a sense that there were survivors, people were trying to leave. Do we have any sense of numbers? I'll be honest with you, we don't really know. In the same way that we didn't know how many people were actually in that shelter, you saw the conditions there. Those pictures filmed about six days ago or posted six days ago. Uh, we didn't know last night how many were there. We don't know how many may have survived. Um, terrifying as that kind of moment of ignorance is. We do know from Ukraine's defence minister, he thinks possibly as many as 1,200 were in that shelter. The issue, of course, initially being that it was the entrance to it that had been so heavily damaged and intended shelling had in fact meant that uh, people couldn't begin the job of clearing rubble. Clearly that's changed. Survivors are coming out and it may just be that the theatre's basement structure held and that airstrike uh, did not take lives. We just don't know, but I'm sure those numbers will come out. Information very scarce out of Mariupol at the best of times. And so uh, none of that detracts though, Julia, from the obvious decision here by the Russian military to drop that bomb to do that airstrike on a building which you saw in that report had children written in Russian visible from space. And so that feeds into a pattern of Russian behaviour here, although possibly this episode, uh, as far as we can tell, ending with some of the best news you could hope for. Julia? Yeah. I mean, Vladimir Putin here seemingly now directly waging war on children um, leaves one speechless. Um, what we also heard today from the Ukrainian officials was, I believe, nine humanitarian corridors leading out from various Ukrainian cities, including Mariupol, had been agreed today. But then we heard from uh, President Zelensky himself saying that what they'd agreed for Wednesday seemingly didn't hold. What can you tell us about efforts today? Look, it's been the history of these humanitarian yeah. corridors. Look, Mariupol has seen some success. It's seen some aid getting in. It's seen some people getting out, thousands. Uh, but there are still hundreds of thousands inside. And there are still moments when humanitarian corridors come under fire. That's been the picture across the country. And that's not uncommon in Russian military operations, that these humanitarian corridors come under fire. There is not a clear boundary in Russian military operations between civilians being targeted targets and military targets. I'm talking to you from Odessa here, Julia, and I'm standing on the main tourist strip, this cobbled street, which should normally be bustling with people uh, on a day like this. Instead, you can see it's utterly deserted and just tank traps. These are soldered pieces together of iron girder designed to slow armoured vehicles. 
and they stretch as far as your eye can see here in between various different barricades. This is a, a city certainly on edge. None of that uh, has been lessened by the air raid sirens we heard. We heard pretty significant anti-aircraft gunfire last night um, and today a local official talked uh, responding to videos posted on social media that showed ships on the horizon here this morning. Uh, the official said, a military official, that these may be Russian ships, that the threat from Russian ships hadn't gone away, but that these were ships manoeuvring designed to raise anxieties here. Obviously, that's had a desired effect. There are concerns that we may see heightened military activity. We've seen planes shot down or told that planes have been shot down by Ukraine, by Ukrainian officials, and there have been reports of shelling along Odessa's coast. All of this adding to fears that this, the main port on the Black Sea, over which Moscow needs to exert some influence by Barak as their choice of that might be in order to control Ukraine's economy, that military operations here might be closer than any other residents here possibly could hope. Mm. Julia? Nick, thank you for your report. Nick Payton Walsh there in Odessa. As we were discussing, the US president for the first time calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal, though the Kremlin is pushing back. Moscow says Joe Biden's comments are absolutely unforgivable and inexcusable. President Biden made the remarks Wednesday after previously refusing to call Russia's actions war crimes. CNN's John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, the press secretary said he was speaking from the heart. The legal definition, of course, includes intentional targeting of civilians. And if we look even just at what's happened in the last 12 to 24 hours, um, arguably the evidence is there. But it is a tone shift. It is, Julianne. I think that reflects the increasing savagery of the the, uh, Russian uh, assault on Ukraine. Uh, What we've seen for the first three weeks of the war is the administration trying to uh, keep the line between uh, that legal definition and uh, what the common sense uh, reaction that ordinary Americans might have uh, to what they're seeing. And uh, as the... um, Uh, increasing uh, number of atrocities has built up on the television screens of Americans, the president is uh, reflecting that outrage. It also is a way for him to respond to the pressure that he's getting from Americans, from Congress, uh, generated in part by that speech from uh, President Zelensky yesterday and uh, the reaction to news reports of do more Uh, uh, give voice, uh, uh, give some action behind the outrage that Americans feel. And the president's drawn a line against some forms of military aid, and he had drawn a line against branding Putin a war criminal. He let that go yesterday. Uh, Still, obviously, as you indicated, there is a legal distinction. And if uh, this situation ever gets to The Hague, they're going to have to prove intentionality. But for the moment, The president uh, was determined to uh, give voice to what Americans are feeling, what he is feeling. uh, And I don't think he's looking for forgiveness uh, from Vladimir Putin uh, when you mentioned uh, Putin saying it's unforgivable. Mm. I mean, the week began another angle here with the national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, meeting China's top diplomat in, in Rome for talks. We've now heard that President Xi and President Biden are going to speak by phone tomorrow. There is a belief clearly that China can help here, at least not hinder the West's efforts to, to end this war, John. But I think there's also a belief that China will extract a price. Well, they will. But I think the fact that this call is taking place after that tense conversation that mm. Jake Sullivan had 
is an indication or recognition by the United States uh, that China understands the reputational damage it faces the deeper it gets identified in this conflict, which the entire world is seeing as butchery. Uh, China benefits from the existing world order, its economy, its uh, a rising power in the world. It does not want to become a pariah state in the way that uh, Russia is on track to becoming. Uh, so I think there's at least a glimmer of possibility that the alliance that had emerged between China and Russia uh, is going to crack a little bit under the strain of this war. And President Biden's going to try to um, uh, drive that wedge, try to make that happen in this conversation tomorrow. Don't know what the result's going to be, of course, but uh, it seems to be worth the effort for the president to do. If if that uh, call uh, that Jake Sullivan had, had and subsequent events had indicated that there was no purpose to the call, I don't think you'd see it happening. Yeah, agree. John Howard, thank you for that. Now from Washington to Moscow, where Vladimir Putin is condemning Russians with what he calls a Western mindset in a televised address. They will try to bet on the so-called fifth column, on traitors, on those who earn their money here but live over there. Live not in the geographical sense, but in the way they think, with the mindset of a slave. These people cannot live without oysters and gender freedom. Jim Bitterman has been following this forest, Jim, uh, calling his own people scum and traitors. It was a, you could call it an unhinged or seemingly unhinged speech from Vladimir Putin there. Perhaps we could argue as he lashes out at the West, also acknowledging the pressure he's facing at home. Unhinged, I guess, is about the mildest way you could put it, Julia. The fact is, uh, we're wondering, you can only wonder what the Russian people must be thinking when they see their president uh, uh, saying, hearing, hearing, saying these kinds of things. He went on, by the way, uh, in that uh, speech where he talked about scum and traitors. He said they would simply spit out uh, like gnats that accidentally flew into their mouths, spit them into the pavement, the, the traitors and, and scum that he's talking about. Uh, it was just a, a speech that was very revealing. It certainly, certainly seems to indicate that he's uh, feeling considerable pressure. And that the propaganda machine in Russia is not particularly working that well. People are getting to know a bit about what's going on. They are starting to see photographs of soldiers coming home. Uh, they're worried about their vacations abroad. Anybody that was thinking about leaving Russia is now faced with the idea that their credit cards won't work, that they're limited to $10,000 worth uh, of cash to take outside the country. Uh, they may find sanctions against them when they, when they do get abroad. So uh, there's a, a lot of indications that the average Russian is feeling a lot of pressure from this, and that's probably being reflected in what uh, Vladimir Putin is saying. Julia? Yeah. Yes. These issues are far greater than something that you can spit out like a gnat. And I think that's the message here. Jim, great to have you with us. Thank you. Jim Bitterman there. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Russia announced today that it's made a $117 million interest payment to foreign buyers of its government bonds, a move that could stave off a debt default. 
The problem is that the funds Moscow used to make the payments came from assets the West has frozen. So there's uncertainty over Russia's ability to actually pay those bondholders, and that uncertainty remains. The lack of clarity on this, just one of a number of conundrums facing investors at this moment, along with the Federal Reserve eager to hike rates to combat inflation and the Chinese government taking a decidedly more supportive approach to the economy, Beijing announcing a dizzying array of measures meant to promote market stability amid ongoing COVID lockdowns that could further weaken its economy and worsen the global inflationary outlook. Stock markets reflect these challenges, I think, a second day of strong gains in Asia driven by China's stimulating moves. US and Europe holding on to much of Wednesday's rally too for now. UK stocks are uh, in the green as the Bank of England raises rates for a third meeting in a row. Wall Street is uh, softer, as you can see there, despite the Fed warning it plans to hike seven times this year and begin quantitative tightening in plain English, selling assets in its multi-trillion dollar portfolio as soon as May. Now, investors were already expecting this. One reason why stocks rallied yesterday. What's not priced in, however, is even more aggressive Fed action if inflation doesn't ease. And policymakers have certainly left the door for that open. So it could spell yet more volatility. Now, the war in Ukraine also presenting a challenge to the auto industry. BMW still getting some parts for its cars from Western Ukraine, but acknowledged further interruptions are expected. The automaker also halting production at some of its German plants after the invasion due to bottlenecks in the supply chain. BMW also tinkering and adjusting its forecast for earnings before interest in tax to between 7 and 9%. So that's a touch lower. Still, BMW says it's focused on its long-term goals, including its commitment to climate neutrality and ramping up electric mobility. Oliver Zipsy, CEO of BMW, and he joins us now. So great to have you with us. I think the most important thing in these situations is what you're trying to do to help. I know that you've uh, given a donation to UNICEF. What more are you planning? Well, good morning, good morning Julia from Munich. I think at the current time, three points are really important for us. The first thing, you mentioned it, is we need to help wherever we can. You mentioned our donation to UNICEF of in the height of 1 million euros, and that is only a start. We will continue to support and help wherever it's needed. And the second thing is we have to remain our operational excellence. As you know, we had some interruptions on the supply chain from the western Ukrainian region. We, uh, we have uh, delivered uh, wire harnesses from there. But already now, our plants here in Germany are ramping up again. And we foresee that we have a fairly normal operation starting next, year or, uh, next week already. Sorry. But the third important thing is that we work on our long-term targets climate neutrality, ramping up electromobility, and also serving our customers um, on a global scale in the United States, but also in Europe and in China. Okay, there's lots to discuss there. Um, Let's talk about your supplies from northern Ukraine, as you mentioned, the, the cable harnesses. It's good that you're back up and running, you hope, from next week. Have you substituted some of the supplies that you were getting from northern Ukraine and when we get to a resolution, fingers crossed, will you bring that business back to Ukraine? Well, the wire harness situation from the Western Ukraine is a very specific environment we have there. 
first of all, we, we don't have a single source there. Uh, we, we, we get supply from five different countries from our wire harness in Central Europe. Uh, we also get supply from Romania, from Northern Africa, um, partially from Poland. And uh, so there's no completely disrupted supply. And now it's ramping up again. We are able to relocate. We're able to use flex time models in other plants. And uh, moreover, our plant in Spartanburg in the United States and also our plants in China are not affected by this, by, by this situation currently. You've also said you're no longer going to supply cars to Russia. You have a joint production partnership um, with the Russian businesses there. Do, do you consider that interest now forfeit? How are you approaching even the sort of joint partnerships that you have there and obviously the decision now not to supply cars, at least for the interim? First of all, it's a, it's a really sad situation, uh, what is happening there, and we feel with everyone who is involved there. Um, uh, but for now, it's too early to speculate what will, what will exactly happen. Currently, we are, we are not exporting cars to the, to, uh, to the Russian market, and our joint cooperation with the company Aftotor in Kaliningrad is currently stopped. So currently, the market is not supplied by BMW. The other thing that you're clearly facing here as the world is, is rising energy costs, rising raw material costs. And what we've discussed on this show in the past is green inflation. The rising cost of component parts and metals in particular for batteries. And I see you in other automakers ramping up your plans and production for electric vehicles. You have, what, 15 models, I believe, now in production. How are you going to mitigate accessibility and cost of some of the green battery component prices that are also soaring today? I think there are three main components in there. The first thing, we have a hedging strategy for electricity, for gas, and then for the most important raw materials. And that is working right now. You hedge because you want to mitigate risks. Uh, we currently do not have any direct impacts on the, on, the, on the electricity and gas side and on the raw material side, we will see an impact of, um, of the mid, mid uh, um, three million uh, targets impact here. The second important point is, and we, we, we mentioned that already last year, that circularity of raw materials from product from cradle to cradle becomes eminently important, not only from ecological reasoning, but also from an economical reasoning, and that is speeding up. And the third thing, I think, is um, we propagate technology openness. It's too early to concentrate only on one drivetrain technology. Because mm. of the impacts of raw materials, um, and I think the current time shows that you have to play in different fields. Um, nevertheless, the ramping up, up, up of electromobility is uh, na the name of the game, and we will increase our BEV production this year by, by more than 100%. And in 2030, that's our forecast, we will reach at least 50% of BEV-only vehicles um, in our portfolio. And maybe if uh, the raw materials don't get into, into really unacceptable areas, that might happen even earlier. 
It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I know you and other players have been criticised in the past for not marking an end to combustion engine production relative to the electric vehicle and, and hybrid, of course, too. But in light of what we're seeing today and some of the challenges, um, that could end up looking very smart. Oliver, the overall message from you today, I believe, is you can't get sidetracked on the plans for the future for BMW. You manage the short term issues, but you keep focused on the future. Well, we may, you have to manage um, uh, the short term, but you also, at the same time, you have to manage next year, the midterm, and, and also the, the long term. I think two main ingredients in our strategy. First of all, we have a global footprint. And I'm quite happy talking to you today. The, the largest increase in revenues and volume in percentage and absolute terms last year was the United States. It was neither Europe nor China. And I think to be a global player with an about equal footprint in the Americas, in Europe, and in, in Asia, including China, I think that is a very robust strategy. And we currently uh, use the momentum in the United States. Uh, we regained uh, leadership um, in the luxury segment in 2022. And already the start of this year's show that our strategy to be a global player is exactly the right strategy. And this year, uh, I will be in April in the United States um, to launch uh, the new i7 um, for the United States. And I'm really looking forward to be back um, um, in the United States in due time. Fingers crossed we have more time to talk about cars and there's less turbulence going on in the world and tragedy. Oliver, great to have you with us. Oliver Sips there, the CEO of BMW. Thank you once again. More to come. Stay with us. A warning from the International Energy Agency, disruption to Russian oil exports could create a global supply shock. I think we're already seeing it. Russia has been hit with tough sanctions, of course, and more and more buyers are avoiding Russian oil. Meanwhile, the oil cartel OPEC is facing growing calls to ramp up production amid rising energy prices. Eleni Jokos joins us now from Dubai. Eleni, great to have you on the show. The other problem, of course, with the IEA is that they slashed the demand forecast due to those high prices. So where does that leave OPEC in making their decision? Exactly. It's such a good uh, point that you're making because I just want to refer to how volatile the oil price has been. And when you see Brent crude going to 140 and then dropping down to 100, you kind of get the sense that a big part of the big volatility we've seen is so much speculation. So what are the supply-demand scenarios that are playing out when the IEA says that there's going to be a huge supply shock, everyone is listening, but at the same time that the higher oil price and the lower global growth scenario that is, of course, being compounded by the fact that we have inflationary pressures is going to in itself create demand destruction, which basically means less demand for oil. But I want to focus on some of the numbers in terms of Russia being the world's largest exporter of oil. And we're talking about 8 million barrels of oil per day. The IEA says that 3 million barrels of oil per, per day are at risk. Who can fill that gap? We've spoken about this, uh, of course, quite a bit since the start of the war. It's the UAE and it's Saudi Arabia that can step in. But OPEC plus countries are reticent to do that. The big question is why? They want to keep Russia close. They want to keep Russia part of OPEC plus because it is important to have one of the global you know, major producers of oil and gas as a market maker down the line because that means stability within the market going forward. But it also is a diplomatic trying to ensure neutrality. At the same time, we had Boris Johnson, the British uh, Prime Minister, coming and visiting leaders in the UAE and Saudi Arabia trying 
to get commitment to increase oil supply. We're not seeing any pledges coming through yet, Julia. So when we hear about volatility, much higher oil prices, and the big question is what is going to happen to the demand scenario, I think all parties are trying to figure out what happens next. In the meantime, we're seeing self-sanctioning by companies, exporters and importers not wanting to touch uh, Russian oil. One expert said that suddenly Russian oil, uh, buying Russian oil is toxic, it's a no-no, and maybe Iran looks uh, a little bit more uh, sort of uh, interesting. I think we're going to see a big recalibration on demand supply dynamics, and the big question is who's going to fill that big gap? In Dubai there for us. Thank you so much for that analysis. Now, energy volatility, just one of a number of unprecedented challenges facing the global economy as the Ukraine war enters its fourth week. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development says the conflict is already hitting global growth, driving inflation higher and disrupting supply chains. It says the eventual toll on the world's most vulnerable people will be substantial. The OECD also urging governments to act immediately to prevent food scarcity resulting from sanctions on Russia. It says authorities must also help people cope with rising energy prices and improve energy security by diversifying sources of power. Matthias Kuhlmann joins us now. He's the Secretary General of the OECD. Matthias, great to have you on the show. I read the whole report and I think what stood out to me, and obviously we have much to discuss, is the refugee crisis and the scale of it compared to what we've seen even in the last 10 to 12 years. It's enormous. It's a massive humanitarian crisis. And, you know, first and foremost, in terms of assessing the impact of this war so far, uh, you know, is, is of course, the dramatic humanitarian impact in Ukraine on the people of Ukraine. In three weeks, uh, we've had uh, more than three million Uh, people flee Ukraine. I mean, that is more than over the two years of 2015 and 16 in the context of the war uh, in Syria. So it it, it is a a crisis of a massive scale. And, and, um, you know, it it has been fantastic to see the level of goodwill and generosity and and the humanity of the response uh, to that crisis from uh, people across Europe and other parts of the world. But this this will be a sustained challenge to absorb and to integrate uh, those refugees uh, moving forward. Yeah, and we were just showing your chart there, the uh, Ukrainian refugees relative to previous year's asylum applications in the EU, and and the the difference is dramatic. What we've also seen, and we were just discussing it there briefly, 60-plus year highs in commodity prices, particularly damaging in terms of cereals, wheat production or output is what a third of the world comes from Ukraine and Russia. You've also looked at some scenarios, one of them assuming no output from Ukraine and the impact that that's going to have. And it's on uh, the price impact is is sort of hitting hardest, those least able to afford it. What worries you most about the impact of this in particular? Well, what what we need to ensure is that, you know, any short uh, and medium term measures, we, we, we need to just make calm and sensible decisions. I mean, the worst thing that we could do uh, is uh, impose export restrictions or impose various other measures that will uh, prevent uh, products going into those markets that need them. I mean, so one of our key messages out of this report today, in terms of making sure that supply, in particular supply of wheat, uh, can go uh, to where it is needed, is to keep markets open, uh, to really resist 
resist the temptation of uh, imposing export restrictions because that will only exacerbate the challenge. And of course, you know, as swiftly as possible, we need to focus on improving uh, productivity, increasing production, finding uh, new areas that can substitute uh, for the uh, lost uh, production out of uh, Ukraine uh, or, uh, and Russia. Yeah, avoid trade barriers in order to try and protect your people. And I guess in terms of a government response, whether we're talking about rising food prices or rising energy prices, do what you can to try and help those that are most vulnerable. Well, you know, in, in terms of the uh, energy supply shock, you know, in particular in Europe, there's, you know, very significant exposure and very significant dependency on energy supplies uh, out, of, out of Russia. And that will not be able to be uh, turned around from one day to the next. So in the short term, it is certainly important uh, to uh, provide support to uh, vulnerable households to help them cope uh, with uh, the uh, price impact while uh, taking steps uh, to uh, diversify energy supply, diversify sources of energy supply, and to really wean uh, Europe off uh, that energy dependence from Russia. But that's simply going to take some time, uh, despite their ambitions and best efforts. Beyond the humanitarian crisis that we've talked about already, the consequences of this war are pushing up inflation more broadly. It's also a drag on growth. It's a sort of worst of both worlds in terms of a stagflationary type environment. So, you know, we've uh, modelled uh, the impact on uh, global GDP of the war based on mm. Uh, the data and information that is in front of us now, I mean, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty. This is a rapidly evolving situation. We don't really uh, know how either the military conflict uh, will continue to evolve or how some of the, or what future decisions might be taken uh, along the way. So what we've done is made an assessment based on all of the data in front of us now. And, and what we've assessed is a negative impact on global growth of about 1% on global GDP and, and a further addition to inflation, which was already rising, of about 2.5%. Um, now, uh, again, I mean, there's, the risks here are all uh, at the downside. So um, you know, we, we, we would have to expect that this situation uh, will continue to deteriorate moving forward. A, a two and a half percentage point further increase on inflation, I think, is what immediately catches my attention. The Federal Reserve yesterday decided to begin, as anticipated, raising rates. They said six further rate hikes this year. The right response, because it has a global ripple ripple effect. Well, look, I mean, you know, in the end, the uh, economic uh, implications of the war in Ukraine are different in different parts of the world. And, you know, they do depend, uh, for example, level of dependency, level of exposure uh, to uh, Russian uh, exports and the like. But, um, you know, it is entirely appropriate for central banks to continue to make judgments based on the data and the information that they see come through in their respective jurisdictions. What we do say, though, is that there is a capacity to more surgical target uh, support to those areas and to those people most in need of support uh, through fiscal policy. And, and, and that is really what we're recommending, that in the short term, in order to cushion uh, the effect um, on um, vulnerable households that are most exposed, use fiscal policy, uh, but use it on a temporary basis in a well-targeted, means-tested fashion, uh, so that you know, obviously those uh, measures can be wound back again relatively swiftly, uh, even as appropriate. 
and you're advocating for more fiscal policy spending in the United States to target those vulnerable people, just to be clear. Well, what, what, what we're saying is, this is, I mean, monetary policy will need to continue to evolve based on the judgments uh, made by central bank governors in, in order to, of course, including, among other things, uh, you know, control uh, inflation. We, we believe that there is an opportunity for well-targeted fiscal support mm. uh, that can help cushion the blow on vulnerable households without significantly adding uh, to inflationary pressures. And that, that is certainly something that we think uh, governments should consider. Yes, I was just uh, I was just clarifying that because the inflation hawks around the world will be uh, squealing at that comment. Um, I want to ask you about China, too, because clearly they have their own battles. We're well, seeing what's going on, gone with Hong Kong. I was going to ask you, how worried are you by what you're seeing in that region, too? Well, look, um, you know, at, at, at any time, there are uh, developments all around the world that, that have implications on the global mm. economic outlook. And, uh, you know, we, we monitor all of these things. But right now, I mean, I think the world is, uh, you know, very seized by what is happening in Ukraine and the flow and implications of that. And, and that's, of course, the information that we've released today. I'll keep focused on that. You've also announced in the past week, and it does tie to the report that you announced today or released today, um, that the Russian accession process to the OECD now is, is terminated. You're closing your office there. It feels like a symbolic move. Um, what does it mean for Russia in practice and what do you want people to, to understand by that decision? Uh, well, well, you know, the, at some point in the 90s, um, it seems like a long, long time ago, but there was a hope uh, that uh, Russia would uh, come closer to the uh, global community of democratic nations uh, committed to market-based economic principles, the human rights, the rule of law, and, and so on. And there was indeed a time when there was uh, you know, partnership with NIDO, uh, G8, uh, and indeed there was an accession uh, process that uh, was commenced uh, in terms of uh, even potentially considering uh, membership of Russia uh, in the OECD. That was suspended in 2014 in the wake of the invasion of Crimea. Uh, and uh, indeed, the OECD Council the other week uh, made a decision to formally terminate that process because there clearly now is no prospect that, at, at least under the current administration, that Russia would ever uh, be able uh, to uh, be eligible uh, for to, to, to join uh, an organization that is committed to democracy, human rights, the rule of law, market-based economic principles. We've made various uh, other decisions. I mean, we did have an office still uh, in uh, Moscow, which uh, has ceased operations, and we've also suspended Russia's participation uh, in uh, OECD bodies. Now, you know, R Russia was um, participating in many of our uh, policy uh, Processes in many of our, in a number of our committees, I should say, um, and you know that that um, participation for the foreseeable future um, has been suspended. Yes, a symbolic move, but I think the message is very clear, Matthias. Thank you for your time today, sir, Matthias Corman, there, the Secretary General of the OECD. Very good to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Coming up after the break, helicopters shot down and tanks ablaze. How the Ukrainian counteroffensive is resisting the Russian invasion. We'll explore next. Welcome back. President Zelensky repeated his call for a no-fly zone and fighter jets in Wednesday's address to the U.S. Congress. 
The United States and NATO are holding back due to the risk of a wider war with Russia. Despite that, Ukraine has been holding Russian forces back by other means, as Fred Plankin reports. This is how Ukraine's army is halting Russia's advance, using anti-aircraft weapons like the U.S.-made Stinger against low-flying helicopters. Now answering Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's plea, the U.S. says longer-range anti-aircraft missiles are arriving in Ukraine, including the powerful S-300. You know what kind of defense systems we need, S-300s and other similar systems. You know how much depends on the battlefield on Russia's ability to use aircraft. After Zelensky's impassioned speech to Congress, President Biden announced a massive new security assistance package worth $800 million, including drones, anti-tank weapons and 20 million rounds of ammunition. It includes 800 anti-aircraft systems to make sure the Ukrainian military can continue, to, can continue to stop the planes and helicopters that have been attacking their people and to defend their Ukrainian airspace. Despite being drastically outgunned, Ukraine's forces have been putting up a tough fight. The country's ground troops led by Colonel General Alexander Sirsky, a veteran of Ukraine's defense of the Donbas region. Meanwhile, the chief commander of the armed forces, General Valery Zaluzhny, who's widely credited with reforming Ukraine's military, vows to fight the Russians to the last drop of blood. I don't have any illusions and don't wait for a gift from God, he says. I fought and have been preparing my armed forces. The weapons supplied by the U.S. and its allies are giving them a fighting chance. Ukrainian units blowing up Russian tanks with shoulder-fired missiles like the Javelin supplied by the U.S. or In-Laws, a similar anti-tank weapon made in Britain. We're at a crucial point in the battle here where Ukraine uh, is tipping the balance against Russia. Russia's clearly in trouble. Ukrainian troops have fought tooth and nail with Russian tanks on the ground, despite being massively outgunned by Vladimir Putin's army. While the U.S. and NATO still reject the idea of a no-fly zone, the Biden administration has made clear it will continue to arm Kiev's forces to help as they bog down the Russian military and inflict massive casualties. Fred Plekin, CNN, Lviv, Ukraine. And coming up, charging to Chelsea, the fabled English football team fielding bidders as oligarch Roman Abramovich bows out. That's next. Welcome back. A Russian court has extended the detention of American basketball star Brittany Griner until May 19th. That's according to Russian state media. The two-time Olympic gold medalist was arrested on drug charges at a Moscow airport in February. She could face up to 10 years in prison if convicted. And more bidders emerging for Chelsea Football Club ahead of tomorrow's deadline, including from Ken Griffin, the billionaire founder of hedge fund Citadel, together with the Ricketts family who own the Chicago Cubs of Major League Baseball. Chelsea's current owner, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, now sanctioned by the UK and EU. Amanda Davies joins me on this. Amanda, I am so confused about how this works. Is it actually easier to tell me what we don't know about how this works than perhaps what we do know? Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. very much the case, Julia. You know, Chelsea have remained very, very quiet on this issue since the sanctions were imposed on Roman Abramovich uh, last week by the UK government. That put the sale officially 
on hold. But we do know that the US-based rain group who are overseeing a sale as and when it happens have set a deadline of tomorrow, Friday, for any interested buyers to submit their proposal uh, and any bid. And as you well know in these situations, as much goes on behind the scenes as it plays out publicly, we know Chelsea is one of the most famous football clubs in the world, playing in the wealthiest league, the Premier League. Premier League clubs do not come up for sale very often. They're the defending European champions. They have a really healthy uh, academy. So it is a very interesting, attractive prospect for anybody who might be able to afford it. And where we are in terms of buying football clubs, well, it looks like consortiums uh, are on the table, really, doesn't it? You mentioned the Ricketts family, the owners of the Chicago Club uh, Cubs. They are one of the few people who have publicly said, yes, we are going to put in a bid by Friday. When they've done that, they've said they will provide further details. But just to put into context how crazy things at Chelsea are at the moment. As they were on the pitch playing in the Champions League on Wednesday night, that is when it emerged that Lord Sebastian Coe, a long-time Chelsea fan who I've often seen at Stamford Bridge, the head of World Athletics, that is when it emerged that he is becoming part of the consortium with the former head of British Airways, an ex-Liverpool Uh, chairman Martin Broughton, they are now throwing their hat into the ring, along with another of uh, a number of other interested parties. We understand there's about 20 vaguely viable people uh, on the table or consortiums on the table. But as things stand, it can't go through. The government have said that Chelsea need to apply for another special license for that to happen. They want to do that, but they have to be able to uh, prove that none of the profits will line the pocket Mm. of Roman Abramovich. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so confusing, isn't it? And it's turbulent off the pitch. How are the players doing on the pitch, sort of managing this? As you said, this was sort of breaking while they were even playing. Yeah, I mean, this is where the best coaches, the best managers in world Mm. football really earn their money. And you have to hand it to Thomas Tuchel for how he has dealt with this publicly. He's fronted up, he's answered the questions and really played it very straight, protected his players, many of whom have got so many questions about what it means for their futures, because at the moment the club can't re-sign players, can't do deals, can't do transfers. So last night they were managed to, you know, Book their place in the quarterfinal of the Champions League. They successfully beat Lille 4-1 on aggregate to make their way through and in the competition where they're defending champions. But still, as the season goes on, that is where it's likely to make more of an impact mm. on the pitch. Focus on the game and the game in front of you and try to shut it all out. That's the message. Amanda Davies, great to have you with us. Thank you. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.